0: hello everyone and welcome to shot reverse shot i'm matt risby good evening and joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology he's been humiliated kicked and spat on and it's only 10 a.m it's ed davis how the devil are you sir
1: I'm good, thank you. Uh okay, that tagline. It kinda sounds like it'd be a comedy about a teacher, I'm gonna say Mr. Woodcock.
0: Mm no, 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 no. It is, <laughs> probably uh, my
1: worst guess to date.
0: No, well I mean it was I mean I could see where you were going with it, but it was actually the uh film Swimming with Sharks. In oh. which Frank Wally kidnaps Kevin Spacey, I believe, and does all those things I
1: can't remember, is he his boss or something or his agent? It's Yeah, it's his boss. Um, It's been a while, but I believe he's the assistant to him, and he's a high-class, uh, Ari Gold-style agent.
0: Oh, okay, okay. So, yeah, this is laying the foundations for horrible bosses much, much later.
1: Yeah, Maybe. so yeah, we have that to blame for yeah. it all.
0: Yeah. Speaking of blame, hey, there's a segue that makes no sense. We <laughs> talked last week about um, John Carney, the director of uh, Once and uh, Begin Again saying mean things about Keira Knightley. Uh, and this week, after I feel after we gave him a piece of our mind, collectively, about how unfair that was, uh, he's performed the old Twitter climb-down. And not just a tweet about it, uh, you know, like when they take a screenshot of their notes. He's written a mm. whole bit. Uh, he cared that much about it. He wrote in his notes how sorry he was. And is it just a case of, do you think he's being genuine, or do you think it was just a case of uh, digging himself out of, uh, out of a hole?
1: I think it's a bit of both. I think he probably does feel genuinely bad about it, maybe because everyone shouted at him, Mm -hmm. uh, which would kind of make him be more reflective and think, yeah, that all that stuff I said about her having an entourage when other people have said the only person that would visit her on the set would be like her mum or something uh, is probably not the best and most professional thing to do if you want to continue making films uh, so I think he probably de- does feel contrite and realises that he did wrong. But at the same time, it also is clearly damage control. But it is the most thorough and uh, and kind of genuine case of damage control I've seen. It's not a kind of like, I'm sorry if you were offended apology or anything like "Oh, I'm sorry if I upset you. It is a genuine, I realised that what I said was terrible and I feel really bad and I hope that you can forgive me sort of thing.
0: Hmm. I really feel like he should have signed it off by saying I said all these things and I'm desperately sorry and, you know, James Corden was way worse than you. <laughs> uh, and then basically next week he would have to be like, "Ah, oh, James Corden, I mean, I'm I'm just... Yeah, I was just saying... And then it just works his way through the cast until he gets to Adam Levine and then just says, no, he really was the worst thing in it.
1: Yeah, I think what he should have done is he should have sent her a piano as kind of penance hmm. to draw from his other better film. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. We've also got um the news this week that I mean, Transformers five is happening and there's not really a great deal we can do about it. Even Michael Bay saying he wasn't gonna make a fourth. Um and now he said he wasn't definitely wasn't gonna make a fifth. But here here we are, Michael Bay making a fifth Transformers film and he's really kind of classing it up by adding Anthony Hopkins to the cast, which you know, that appointment um proves and confirms what we've thought for many A year that uh, Anthony Hopkins really does not give a fuck.
1: No, he definitely likes to work, Mm. I think. And that is something that, if anything, is probably the most British actor thing you can do. Mm. Because if you look at someone like historically, like Laurence Olivier in Class of the Titans or something, Mm. it definitely feels in keeping with that tradition where it's nice if you can perform Shakespeare sort of uh, nine months out of the year or to do kind of work that you genuinely. Uh, believe in and that gets you an Oscar or gets you kind of plaudits, but also you know you have to eat. And if someone drives a a truck full of money up to your house and says, "Hey, do you want to talk to CGI robots for a bit?" He's probably going to say, "Yeah, all right."
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, didn't he get paid like a million dollars for? And this is it. I forget he was in Mission Impossible too. And most people do. He's the boss of like MI whatever they are. You know, of Mission Impossible. And he he has like a a quick scene with Tom Cruise and it's over, and he got paid like a million dollars for that.
1: Yeah, I'd forgotten he was in that at all. It's been, although I haven't seen that film since the theatres and I have no desire to revisit it. Mm. Uh, But yeah, I'd forgotten he's in that, and I guess he was probably well paid for like Thor and Thor 2, which he's in even less and he's asleep for most of, isn't he?
0: Yeah, I think so. He he doesn't, yeah, it wasn't a too tough a day at the office, I wouldn't have thought. But anyway, there we go. Uh, That's not going to make the film any more watchable. But we're probably still going to have to watch it when it comes out, just to have a sense of grinding duty to inform our listeners that kind of, uh, and also to fill out the the worst film of the year poll because it's always a contender, isn't it?
1: Yeah, there's always uh, they're always there. It's like um, like Radiohead and the Mercury Music Prize. It's like mm. they'll probably never win it, but they'll always they'll always be guaranteed a slot in the kind of the final t- twelve.
0: Yeah, it's like when if in doubt, you've got that fifth Oscar nomination nominate Meryl Streep for the Red Violin (laughs) (laughs) which um, oh no it wasn't Red Violin it was Music of the Heart wasn't it? Wes Craven's non-horror sappy as fuck film about a music teacher which is terrible but Meryl Streep's in it fuck it let's nominate her.
1: And the Iron Lady as well a few years ago which she actually won won for which is crazy that's definitely a case of them thinking oh we need to fill this out with something and then everyone just thinking oh that's a decent impression why not?
0: Mm. Well, on a, on a similar note, people will forget. And for kind of those of you keeping score in, in pub quizzes, remember these ones. Uh, Johnny Depp was nominated for the first Pirates of the Caribbean film mm-hmm. as the one who would never win. But it was like, hey, that did well. And everyone was surprised at how good a Keith Richards impression he can do. And <laughs> uh, Renée Zellweger was nominated for Bridget Jones.
1: Yeah, it's those are always ones that are quite, kind of quite nice, if only for a trivia thing or in the case of like a Johnny Depp where at that time he was a widely acclaimed and beloved actor who had, could do no wrong mm. and he had never been nominated for an oscar and i don't think he's been nominated since although for for different reasons before it was because he did films that oscar would never touch and actually no it's the same reason yeah. <laughs> and now he does films that oscar would never touch for different it, reasons yeah exactly
0: yeah yeah it's unlikely to 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 kind of change either we have got, what is it, like phase nine of like the, the Marvel films <laughs> is, is coming out. And the next lot, the next taxi off the rank, kind of in the future, after Black Panther and all that lot comes out in 2017. So this will be in like 2025 or something. But uh, Captain Marvel, a superhero I don't really know a great deal about, but uh, is probably worth talking about because it's a lady. And uh, Brie Larson in the style of Halle Berry and Catwoman. Uh, has won an Oscar and is uh, now might now try and flush it down the toilet as hard as she can.
1: Yeah, well, to be fair, she's already got that because she's in that new King Kong movie. Oh, Kong, is she? Skull Island. Right. Yeah. Okay. So she definitely, I think she's getting out of her system well in advance. Hmm, uh, hang then... on, can we
0: just go back to the Kong film because Kong Skull Island is that kind of insinuating that? I mean, he's always lived on Skull Island, right? Yes. He had a very brief residency in New York.
1: Kind of a five-night sort of thing. It was... Limited it was, engagement. Yeah, to get him a nomination for a Tony.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he always lived on Skull Island. But, you know, what's the point in that title? Is he not going to make it to New York in this, or is it just going to be on Skull Island? In which case, what's the point of this film?
1: Uh, I'm guessing that it is just all taking place on Skull Island, and it's the people arriving there before the more famous uh, expedition... And that it is mainly a chance for him to just fight dinosaurs for 90 minutes. That's what I would assume. Mm. Um, The only thing that I really know about it is that universal studios here in Florida are kind of really going all in on it because they have like an entire section of their islands of adventure, which is being made up now to be all Kong related, Mm. which does feel like they're putting the cart before the horse a little bit because the film's not even out. Mm. Um, and it is just kind of being plonked between like the comic books bit and the Harry Potter land, so it could probably get ignored if the film doesn't do well.
0: Mm, I remember the Universal attraction uh, back in back in the day, like early nineties. I've still got a picture of me and my dad in King Kong's hand. It was called Confrontation, which is oh, yeah. punning of of the highest order.
1: Yeah, that one. Uh, I went on that right before it got taken out, because I think it got taken out in the early 2000s, and that was the first time I came to Florida. Mm. And uh, I could I can definitely see why, because it was the boring, most boring ride there other than the Jaws ride, Yeah. Um, where it literally was, you just went on a cable car, and then at one point you got close to King Kong's face, mm-hmm. uh, and it was pretty disappointing. The other thing that's kind of interesting about the Ms. Marvel news, sorry, Captain Marvel, I'm mixing up my characters, but yeah. the Captain Marvel news is, if Brie Larson gets it, and I imagine they probably will, she probably will, because she's very high profile and she's, she's so hot right now, mm-hmm. uh, They apparently they are in talks for uh, Nikki Cairo, who directed Whale Rider. Oh, that's a great and, movie. And Jennifer Kent, who made The Babadook, as the directors. And this always comes with the caveats that it's you, it's kind of a poison chalice to want someone who's an interesting low budget director to make a Marvel movie because you think well they could it could give them more opportunities but it could also just kind of grind them down and chew them out and the studio system could kind of remove all of their uh any kind of creative spark they might have for it but that would be like an amazing thing for either those two filmmakers to get it for a woman to direct a film about a female superhero and also uh just to kind of throw a bone to the antipodeans out there yeah,
0: and it's kind of a bit of a trend in the news this week because they're obviously searching for a new bond. Um, mm. And in the kind of search for that, they are talking to Susan Beer, who directed uh, The Night Manager, the TV show, who mm. was recently on to much acclaim uh, as a possible uh, director of that. Almost, um, I mean, it's an exciting appointment. The Night Manager was great. But also kind of, I don't know whether that might placate people who want a non-white male bond.
1: Yeah, because I think she she would have to be the first woman to have directed a Bond film, right?
0: Oh yeah, it's a it's a bit of a sausage fest, I think, uh, up to this point.
1: Yeah, even if she's not the first, she's definitely the first in at least twenty or thirty years, because pretty much all of them going back to at least Goldeneye have been directed by men.
0: Most of them by Guy Hamilton as well.
1: Uh yeah, yeah. So it's not the most diverse uh, selection of directors there is so uh, it would be nice to see her and obviously she's like a fantastic filmmaker she made open hearts which is one of my favorite films of hey that, that was in the Washington alternate days. 100 it was that was so her this yeah so oh this was, i did not know that yeah so this is a, a bump for her definitely through our our kind of uh championing of her earlier work getting her the night manager and and bond um mm. but no, we, brought, be-
0: we brought john carney down <laughs> and we we pushed her to where she needed to be
1: such such power we have Mm, Queen makers. (laughs) And queen makers. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Monarch makers, I think, in general. Um, But yeah, no, that'd be... It'd be great if she gets the job, but yeah, you're right. It does seem to be the classic case of diverting people's attention. It's like, oh yeah, we're giving it to Tom Hiddleston or whoever, but hey, we're not just (laughs) hiring another white guy to shoot it, so that's Mm. something.
0: Yeah, I mean, like... I mean, Bond is something that we're kind of not hugely interested. in. I'm certainly not. Um, no, but like, is is that ever going to like? Is is this is this going to drag on and on and on? It'll always just be some white dude,
1: probably. I mean, I'd like it to be for them to cast someone who is more uh, like who is not white. Like Idris Elba is obviously the one that would go to, but I remember seeing someone uh, positing Riz Ahmed. As a a possible bond at one point, and I think that would be great. I'd watch it. Yeah, he's a great, he's a terrific actor who also is not white, so that helps. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it, it just feels like that would be a leap that I think a lot of people would be happy with, but that would also represent tremendous risk to the producers and the filmmakers and. Uh, they have proven over the entirety of the 50-something year of the Bond franchise that they're not the most, that they're not kind of great risk takers. They like to avoid it where possible. They make tiny course corrections between films if necessary, but they don't kind of really go out on a limb. Mm. Like Daniel Craig, I guess, was kind of going out on a limb, but it was still not the kind of, I mean, they went for a blonde Bond and that's kind of the the most daring they've been. And Mm. it feels like uh, they need to wait another 50 years to take another step beyond that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I remember the hoo-ha when they were, like, the blonde Bond. People, people didn't like that at all, so it's uh, yeah. how someone who's not white might just uh, kind of bring the whole thing kind of shaking down to its foundations. But I, mean, I suppose you kind of hit the nail on the head there. They're not risk-averse if they've been making the same film repeatedly for 50 years.
1: Yeah, and every so often experimenting with, oh, there's continuity between these ones. It's like... That's not that's not the kind of the boldest stance to take.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's continuity between this film where there's some guy who wants to destroy the world and Bond has to stop them, and this film where some guy wants to destroy the the world and Bond has to stop them because yeah, <laughs> you know there really is no no difference. Last bit of news uh, this week: we're talking about uh, we talked about Brie Larson being so hot right now. No one is hotter than uh, Lin Manuel Miranda, um, mm. the the star and uh, creator of uh, Hamilton, the musical, not to be confused with Hamilton, the place in Scotland. And he is joining the cast of Mary Poppins, I presume, in the Burt role.
1: Yeah, that seems to be the assumption in the the somewhat delayed sequel, Mary Poppins Returns, Mm. which does sound very dramatic, starring Emily Blunt, of course, in the Mary Poppins role. And uh this is on the one hand it's it's great because he's a hugely talented guy. he's probably gonna win an Oscar for the songs he's written for Mona, which would make him the youngest ever e gotter in history. He's mm-hmm. gonna probably win a couple of Tonys in a few weeks, so he's like hugely talented guy deserves all of his respect his his respect definitely and his success, which is what I meant to say. Mm.
0: I deserve uh, his respect,
1: yeah <laughs> he's just a he's like just a fantastic wonderful man but it also means because he's having all this success that he's having to leave Hamilton next month. And for me personally, that's devastating because I've got tickets to see Hamilton in October.
0: <laughs> yeah. That yeah. kind of sucks. I mean, I was, I was talking to you a couple of weeks ago about when I arrive in America on my kind of uh, year long sabbatical, whether I'll get to see him or catch him like next summer, but he's leaving next month, <laughs> which yeah, means that I'm will truly Not only have I missed the boat, it's on its way back from Antarctica without uh, him on it.
1: Yeah. Like uh, <laughs> chances are you'll be, you'll come over here and then he'll go over to the UK to <laughs> star in like the West end version. And you'll miss him there.
0: Oh, I will be shaking my fist. Lin-Manuel Miranda, you beautiful, talented man. Why are you ruining my life? But yeah, I mean, uh, he's, he's, he's going to kind of be ever present now. I guess he has kind of uh, cracked mainstream success uh, relatively late. He is, Younger than me, which makes you feel quite sick, but uh, <laughs> he is also, the, his first film, uh, first Broadway musical he did uh, in the Heights, I think is being adapted for a film, or
1: possibly. Yeah, that one, it's been in the works for a while, and then it seemed to stall, and now apparently they, uh, the Weinstein Company are going full tilt on it, because they have a new script, and also because like before he was a guy who wrote a kind of a moderately successful Broadway musical that a lot of that people liked, but wasn't well known. And now he's the biggest Broadway hit in years and kind of a cultural phenomenon. So obviously it seems like this would be the time to try and get anything Lin-Manuel Miranda related out there to the public. And a Hamilton movie is probably four or five years away, or it'll be like rent and you won't get a movie of it until like 10 years later. So, uh, in the Heights is probably a safer bet.
0: Mm. He said in uh, interviews that he didn't want to see it for a, for a good twenty years. So, wow, you know, might be dead by then. So he'd,
1: he'd he'd be the right age to kind of play Hamilton at the end of his life then. So he was kind of he'd, he'd age into the role a little more.
0: Mm. Mm. Absolutely. So yeah, that's the news this week. But I guess you listeners at home might be thinking, hey, you're kind of ignoring one massive bit of news that kind of dominated. the the gossip pages uh, for many a day this week, (laughs) many a day this week, uh, for most of this week, which is uh, the Rogue One uh, news that uh, it may or may not be in a bit of trouble. And the reason we talk about this last is because it feeds into the main topic of this week's podcast, which is uh, disastrous film shoots. Now, I think we should talk about Rogue One a little, Ed, because it's been a very interesting week in the sense that, we have had the announcement that they're going to be doing some reshoots and then some of the internet losing its tiny mind.
1: Yes, they very quickly became a kind of a cottage industry. I mean, there's a cottage industry in Star Wars rumors already and it's been kind of growing exponentially ever since Disney bought the company. So any kind of scrap and any kind of morsel will get chewed over by the slash films of the world. Mm -hmm. But this one seemed to really set off a feeding frenzy and that rumors are flying all over the place they were saying oh they're going to reshoot 40 percent of the movie and it's going to be completely reshaped and uh that you know there was kind of all this panicky thing it's like oh my god they're reshooting parts of it it's going to be terrible and then towards the end of the week disney perhaps realizing that there was some sort of firestorm happening on twitter and on blogs came out and basically said no this was planned all along we planned to have reshoots like five weeks of reshoots because that's what you do with a blockbuster these days because sometimes things don't work out or you want to make tweaks towards the end and you know the, this is being overseen by uh by gareth edwards even though it's going to be carried out in part by tony gilroy who uh, directed the born legacy. legacy yeah yeah I can never remember what that one is because I think everyone's just forgotten it's happening. Mm -hmm. And Simon Crane, who is going to be the, who is a stunt coordinator who worked on edge of tomorrow, who's coming in as a second unit guy. uh, And that it's basically not something for people to freak out about Mm. is is what they're saying.
0: Yeah. Uh, It was interesting because you think that some of the people who write for these news sites know a little bit about filmmaking.
1: mm.
0: And also they would know that if, A film was gonna is taken a year to shoot or a year to make up to this point, that they would reshoot nearly half of it and it would still make a December release date. They wouldn't figure out that there was something fishy with the figures, and it's been kind of a joy this week to watch some of these websites be kind of taken down a peg or two, especially by uh, Christopher McQuarrie, who was uh, rumored to be supervising the reshoots, Um, and he came out on Twitter and said. that's not true. Nothing of the sort. I did an early draft of it, and while we're on the subject, um, you really shouldn't print a story uh, until you've approached your uh, me <laughs> to ask. <laughs> and also, by putting in big capital letters, updated and changing it is not the same as retracting it. Being mm. wrong in the first place, which is is kind of nice to see that like those blurred lines between journalism and blogging don't go unnoticed by the people who kind of it affects most the people who's having their kind of professionalism called into question but it's it's kind of it was ridiculous that it got that far and it was worse that i mean a lot of this originated from a website called making star wars which like i say is one of the the kind of uh the leaders of this cottage industry uh for kind of tittle tattle and they were being quoted as fact by like big publications and, like, this is a website that has is you know, to use, you know, that percentage, about 40% accurate about 40% of the time. Mm. And it's crazy that it kind of got this far. I don't know whether it's just because people love Star Wars so much that, like, th- that they're just so worried that it will be bad, that it's worth freaking out over this, given the fact that all films, like you say, all big films have reshoots built into them. An interesting quote came this week from someone, I can't remember who it was, I think it might have been uh, kind of a a producer who who kind of produces films at a much lower level, said that every single film in the world that was made would reshoot after they finished their edit if they could afford it. It's a luxury that Disney have. And also the fact that it's going to take five weeks. Everyone's like they're going to be shooting six days a week for five weeks. Like, no one stopped to consider that, like, it's going to take five weeks because it's got a really big ensemble cast, and they're all doing other things.
1: Yeah, and and you're right in that it shows a profound misunderstanding of how exactly filmmaking works. That they people don't look at that and think, "Oh, that seems about reasonable." That seems expected. It also shows a complete lack of uh, perspective in that the previous Star Wars film also went underwent reshoots, mm, pretty extensive uh, even, as well. Yeah, much more extensive because in the case of the Force Awakens. Uh, Obviously there was Harrison Ford's injury which caused them to shut down production for a little while but also it was during that time that they realised that there was potential in the Finn and Ray kind of friendship Mm. and so they had to rewrite and reshoot and basically include what turned out to be the most kind of well liked part of the movie Mm. uh, and and kind of introduced and, and brought out that charisma and that sense of camaraderie between those two characters that was a really kind of winning part of that movie. And to kind of say instantly, oh, they're reshooting everything, everything must be terrible, even though the last time that uh, people did reshoots on a Star Wars film, it improved it immeasurably and helped it become one of the most successful films of all time. And one of the most acclaimed films of last year, a film that won seven Oscars and was a huge critical success and did pretty well commercially, Mad Max Fury Road, underwent something like six months of reshoots because that was a film that they kind of finished shooting and they was like you know what we need to do some more stuff with this we've got more ideas we want to kind of try and do whatever we can to make this as good as possible mm-hmm. uh, and obviously having the money and the 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 ability to do that you know that turned out well so kind of the the notion that reshoot equals film is in trouble or reshoot equals studio meddling and this is evil it isn't necessarily borne out by the facts and by recent history.
0: Mm. And in Rogue One's specific case, they're kind of uh, corporate overlords at Disney. And I don't want to say that Disney have churned out some shit in their time, but I mean, just look at the, you know, Disney sequels. Um, You only need to see The Hunchback of Notre Dame 2 once to (laughs) realise that they really don't mind putting their name to uh, Tat. Now, Mm. with the Star Wars name... Disney could just put this out and it would make a ton of fucking money. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. At least this shows that they give a shit.
1: Yeah, and they have been very, very careful with the property so far. Obviously, The Force Awakens was very carefully handled when J.J. J. Abrams said that he wanted to push it back from a summer release to Christmas. They allowed him the time to finish the edit and everything like that. So they are... And they've learned from Marvel that what you want to do is you want to try and just kind of put out the best films that you can because... That's the only way that these things work. If you put out a bad film of a of a fanboy property, the response will be swift and merciless. So, mm. and Ryan they, Johnson
0: as well has been given that yeah. was that episode eight was supposed to be out in May, um, and that's been bumped back. Uh, but they kept the shoot date, so I assume that that's going to wrap finishing uh, wrap shooting very soon, and they will have as much time as they want to look at it and and kind of remold it.
1: Yeah, and they will probably reshoot some of it because that's what you do when you have the money.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, big case in point, we're talking about reshoots. Uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, as kind of people who know a little bit about those films will know that they shot all three films at once. They got the first film out and it was revealed kind of, I don't know if we talked about this on the show or not, but it was revealed in an interview with Viggo Mortensen earlier this year, mm. that before they screened the, the preview footage in Cannes the year it came out, there was a plan in place to release the second two films direct to video if the first film didn't take off. But luckily the first film did take off, made a fuck ton of money. And as a consequence, as they've got all this film sitting around in a can and they've got a year between releases, they reshot huge portions of it.
1: Yeah, and completely reshaped it and basically gave us the films that now exist. Mm. Uh, And that was definitely, I think, the right decision. Because from what people say, or certainly what Viggo Mortensen said in that, interview the original cuts were just a complete mess and it would have been like a complete disaster that's why they were kind of putting all of their eggs in one basket and thinking you know the first one needs to be a hit because otherwise we can't you know we can't commit to putting these two out in theaters because they're just not up to snuff mm. uh, and then the success of the first one obviously gave them the time and the resources and the money to say yeah we can we can do this with the next two
0: yeah 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 um, I mean that's a thing of uh, having the money to do so there's some really great examples of things that were reshot where perhaps that luxury wasn't there uh, in the same way a film like ET uh, the ending was changed um originally I, I believe the the little kind of frog monster dies at the end of the original version and you know Spielberg screened it and you know he likes to care what the audience thinks realized the ending didn't work and and reshot a new one Rocky, I believe had a similar ending kind of conundrum. I don't know where, I don't know what the original ending of Rocky was. I don't know if he won the fight or or what. Or maybe he didn't have a fight. They just sat down and <laughs> uh, discussed it like civilized men.
1: He just had a stroke and they forgot to fight. Um
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I think um but the ending to Rocky was changed and let's not forget one of the most kind of beloved films from the 80s, uh Back to the Future um was nearly completely reshot due to the fact that they realized they cast the wrong actor.
1: Yeah, um in the, in that instance they had Eric Stoltz who because Michael J Fox wasn't available because he was filming um whichever sitcom he was on Growing Pains? No, that doesn't sound right.
0: Whichever whichever one he uh, was. It's got like a shit title like All in the Family or something like that. isn't it? Family Ties. Yeah,
1: that's it. Yeah. There was just so many yeah. of those kind of generic sitcom names that all kind of blur together in my mind. But yeah, so he, he was unavailable initially, and then they started shooting with Eric Stoltz, and they realized, oh, well, this isn't working, he doesn't fit the role, and it's just, yeah, we need to we need to figure out how to make this work. And then Michael J. Fox, like a trooper, uh, kind of worked out an arrangement where he would shoot Back to the Future during the day, family ties at night, and uh, kind of ran, him, ran himself ragged for a guy barely in his 20s. But obviously it worked out, the film turned out really great and the Eric Stoltz footage remained unseen until like a couple of years ago when it leaked online and everyone Mm. more or less said, yeah, this was probably the right choice that they went with a different person. In the case of Rocky, I believe originally there was going to be like, the ending was going to have Rocky at the end of the fight being like carried out on a wave of people's backs, just kind of jumping into the crowd and crowd surfing it. And when they Mm -hmm. got into the edit, they looked at it and he says, yeah, this doesn't work. It's really bad. (laughs) It doesn't work at all. So they had to go and they shot like with almost no money, the actual ending, which is him and Adrian getting in the ring together and just kind of like hugging it out. And I think if you look at it, you can tell there's only like five extras or something because they were just trying to make do and they end up with a really genuinely very kind of moving and powerful ending because they went back and <laughs> kind of turned down the bombast in a way that the series wouldn't for another kind of 30 something years
0: mm. are there any examples we can think of of films that were reshot or extensively reshot that just didn't work i mean a lot of them are kind of like forgotten uh it's history the one the one that springs to mind uh from kind of Uh, very recently was the remake of the invasion of the body snatchers the one with nicole kidman and daniel craig where i think the film didn't really work so they tried to reshoot it but people weren't available so it kind of just sat for a while and then when they finally did get to reshoot it, it turned out to be shit
1: yeah that one was originally shot by i believe it was shot by the guy who directed downfall
0: it was either downfall of the guy who shot uh, the lives of others. One of the two.
1: I think the guy who shot lives of others uh, went on to direct The Tourist.
0: Wow those those two guys really fell off fell off uh, their pedestals, didn't they?
1: Yeah, they both kind of made leap to Hollywood and with uh, misguided star vehicles. But yeah, the guy it was definitely the guy who directed Downfall. I think um, mm-hmm. that's that's a very kind of wavering sentence. But yeah, he directed it, and I think his initial version. Was perhaps less plot-driven and more kind of a mood piece, and they were like, "No, this isn't what you, we want from a invasion of the body snatchers movie starring two huge stars." They brought in the Wachowski siblings to rewrite it, and also it was, I believe, the shoot was o- overseen by the guy who directed V for Vendetta, who's kind of one of their protege proteges, and yeah, it, they just ended up with this weird mix between. A kind of character driven sci fi movie, and then kind of moments when you would just get action set pieces. A kind mm. of a, a middle case between the two would be something like World War Z from a few years ago, which was famously the entire third act was like completely reshot, more or less, and because um, the studio hated what Mark Forster had come up with, and so they came up with this weird minimalist finale where uh, Brad Pitt just goes around a. Basically, an office block in Wales uh, with a handful of zombies, and it's really weird and small. And Peter Capaldi, Peter Capaldi, and Nager currently on AMC's Preacher. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's it's like a really weird, not entirely successful ending built kind of around an interesting idea. I do genuinely think it would be great if more blockbusters ended with always making it really small, and but in that instance, it just kind of didn't work. Another one that I think is it it it's either bad or great depending on who you talk to would be. Superman 2 which famously shot at the same time as Superman 1 with Richard Donner shooting it and then he fell out with the Soulkinds who were the guys who were producing it so they fired him and replaced him with Richard, uh, uh, Richard Lester who's uh, a very very talented filmmaker of his own right but very different kind of tonally and they vindictively had him reshoot almost the entirety of the movie so that they could take Richard Donner's name off the film and uh, resulted in this kind of very more slapstick-heavy version of the character than the the Richard Donner version. And then a few years ago, the Richard Donner cut of the film was kind of, uh, was unearthed and sort of reconstructed from surviving footage and rehearsals and things, and you ended up with a version that wasn't entirely successful but kind of pointed towards a darker, moodier, more interesting film than the one we actually got. mm hmm. Interesting. I mean,
0: it's. I think for those people who are worried about Rogue One, um, the big worry is not that they're reshooting something. It's when they take the director off it. Mm. That is generally the that's when panic should set in, um, because it's rarely a good idea to remove the director, and kind of change. Because I think as we kind of saw in in something we talked about uh, late last year that that um, the video of Peter Jackson. Uh, talking about essentially having to re-steer the Hobbit trilogy towards his vision that he was making up at every day uh, as they went along is that you know you don't just pull a director from it's not a TV show which which has got like a well-established set of rules and a style and everything. If you bring a director into a film, it's because you want their vision and their mark on it. You don't, mm. you, and if you've already started with someone else's, it's very difficult to turn that ship around. I think there's uh, a case that I can think of a very big budget film that has slipped into obscurity. The film Supernova, uh, the film that Mm. was uh, for a long time Walter Hill's last film, kind of hyper talented Walter Hill, perhaps not the greatest choice for a kind of a big budget sci fi film. And yeah, that went awry, and they brought in Francis Ford Coppola to finish it. And it was, I think it was like the the film that uh, retired the Alan Smithy uh, name. From the DGA and replaced with uh, I think it's uh, Thomas Lee now but that was the first film to have Thomas Lee name on it because there was no director so I mean, at least Gareth Edwards hasn't been removed from uh, what's it called uh, Rogue One and the, the person they brought in to assist Tony Gilroy pretty much did the same job on Godzilla.
1: Yeah so it definitely feels like this is definitely more of a case of them saying okay the film we need to rejig some stuff maybe or also you know sometimes like with the force awakens you discover something in shooting that you want to emphasize but that you can't emphasize whilst you're in the middle of shooting because it's an immensely complex thing and you don't want to fall behind so mm. you can't kind of spend ages rewriting or just kind of rejigging things on the fly so it's better to just do it all in reshoots and from what disney have said and obviously this could all just be spin and it could be a complete disaster and they are replacing like 40% of the film. But uh, from what they're saying and what a lot of people involved are saying is that it's just kind of more emphasising character stuff and maybe make, building up relationships that worked really well that they hadn't really planned to work before. And that that is, in many, way kind of, many ways, kind of the, the best case scenario when you reshoot stuff.
0: Mm. And I think this also proves that changing the script after you've started shooting is probably not the best idea because one of the things that has come out of this whole reshoot malarkey is the uh, news that that two people who wrote a script for Rogue One, Christopher McQuarrie and another person whose name I forget, we're great with names this week, they (laughs) both turned their drafts in uh, halfway through filming. Right, yeah. Which is kind of, you know, a little late. And, you know, what if those drafts are suddenly fantastic? and better than what you've already shot, then, yeah, you are going to have to go back and change some things. But, I mean, you know, time will tell to see if uh, this is a disaster, but the the history of film is littered with uh, disastrous productions, and kind of we were kind of talking beforehand about which ones kind of uh, jump to mind uh, when thinking about it. Uh, Probably the gold standard of uh, disastrous productions coming out the other end uh, smelling of roses somehow is probably Apocalypse Now.
1: Yeah. Definitely.
0: Kind of well documented in a variety of sources, diaries and the the very great film uh, Hearts of Darkness, also a uh, shot reverse shot uh, alternate 100 pick. But yeah, it's it, that goes to show that great films can come out of the most adverse of conditions. But if you wind back, you know, eight years in Francis Ford Coppola's career when he wasn't the kind of maverick director, the vanguard of a new movement of American cinema, he was just a director for hire for The Godfather, which we all look at now as a multi Oscar award winning film, a kind of classic, a kind of uh, iconic American film, something that's part of the, the the kind of tapestry of modern film and kind of ingrained in pretty much all the filmmakers working today's minds and memories and, and kind of uh, creative palettes. Um, he was going to get fired from that movie after like a week because they would they weren't convinced in him they weren't convinced in uh, Al Pacino, they wanted robert redford uh, to be in it or you know kind of uh, dustin hoffman and that's crazy
1: yeah i think robert evans says in his book the kid uh, stays in the picture that he fired him four times from the film essentially in, in the sense of like going up to him saying get off my fucking set or whatever and then, then someone having to smooth it over uh, and then he describes in the book you know being at the rap party or the premiere or whatever and being hugged by francis ford coppola and it all being water under the bridge because they'd made a movie and they were really proud of what they'd done and i think that underscores kind of one of the important things about troubled productions is that they are only remembered as being troubled or as being disasters if they don't succeed Mm. success papers over the cracks of that a lot more and in some cases like the, the apocalypse now one it feeds the legend of that film that it was such a hellish shoot, and it was, it like people died, <laughs> people nearly died, and the, it was washed out by a typhoon, and like it was just, it, it seemed to be a film that the earth itself was trying to prevent being made, and mm. it ended up being made, and it ended up being a kind of un uh, unqualified classic, you know, just like one of the absolute pinnacles of American cinema coming out at the end of the 70s after this great decade for for director-led uh, cinema in the US, uh, and you kind of get this this kind of work of absolute madness. Uh, and the, the production of it being so strange and so unusual feeds into that sense that, you know, we weren't making a film about Vietnam, we were making Vietnam, or whatever the, the couple of quotes.
0: Mm. And let's not forget that they started the film with a different actor in the lead. <laughs> Uh, Harvey Keitel was, was originally the Martin Sheen role. Martin Sheen was brought in. Martin Sheen had a heart attack on, on the set. Um, so they didn't
1: tell anyone.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 but didn't tell anyone. Significant portions of that film uh, were reshot, shot twice, shot three times. Um, I think my favorite thing about that just sums up how ludicrous Apocalypse Now is is that they were borrowing helicopters from the Philippine Army. Mm. And. <laughs> They would be setting up this shot and then there'd be like a on the radio and they're like, yeah, sorry, we've got to go and like suppress a rebel uprising in the south of the country. (laughs) And they just go and be involved in very real war and then fly back to the set and say, oh, yeah, cool. Let's do this, this thing now, Um, which is kind of insane. But like uh, think of other films that have had big production problems, uh, budget overruns that, you know, people that come to define them uh something like waterworld springs to mind mm. um basically mad max on on water made in the kind of mid 90s kind of seen as a as a as a kind of symbol of 90s hollywood excess um ridiculously expensive hugely over budget but no one really thinks about it anymore
1: yeah it was one that i think it, it ended up doing kind of just well enough to be a kind of a borderline success so, but also it was a very boring film, so it's not really worth talking about. Um, mm-hmm. It's most notable just for being the first step on Kevin Costner's complete decline, which was completed two years later with The Postman, yeah. which was uh, also kind of a hugely expensive film that overran, but or made a huge made uh, a was a huge loss for the studio. So it was forgotten for <laughs> for another reason, if it's remembered at all. I think other examples you could see is something like Heaven's Gate. It's mm-hmm. kind of a big one. A film that has been rehabilitated somewhat in recent years by idiots. No, no by, by people who respect it and find something to like in it that I personally don't, because I, I think it's a pretty terrible film. But one that is kind of an impressive exercise in excess and hubris on the part of Michael Cimino. And there's lots of great stories about it, about them building whole street sets and then looking at it through the camera and thinking no we need it to be like two foot to the left so having to take the entire set apart and move it and just these wild stories about budget overruns and things like that and that being one of the early examples of a film being completely undone by its production because you had journalists sneaking in on set and then writing these exposés before the film even came out which was the sort of thing that you kind of didn't really hear about prior to the 1970s because in the heyday of the studio system and for a few years after all news came through like fan magazines and stuff stuff that was very controlled or suppressed by studios they were able to keep a lid on things in the 70s you start to see less of that less respectful journalism and people uh, enjoying the opportunity post like Hollywood Babylon to really report on the excesses of Hollywood in either you know their private lives or the kind of the craziness of film production itself
0: mm. and in the case of heaven's gate that film was so disastrous it ended a studio and also a movement and kind of gave birth to the the kind of high concept era um due to its failure the same way that uh, another film that came around the same time one from the heart um, which is a great film a uh, divisive as well as, as heaven's gate but perhaps less so a film that uh, when you see it, you think, oh, wow, this is a really good film shot in Vegas. And then you realise that, oh, no, Francis Ford Coppola built Las Vegas and a great expense um, for no real reason <laughs> other than to have full control over what he wanted to do and probably because he could at that time. But to make a musical with two people in it who probably wouldn't think of as great musical stars and it'd be kind of weird, but also kind of well, quite entrancing. It was kind of a... uh destined to fail from the beginning.
1: Yeah, and that was another one that like Heaven's Gate kind of took down the company that produced it because it was an American Zoetrope production which was Coppola's company and they were the ones that had produced a lot of his previous films, but that one, that and The Cotton Club, I think were the two back-to-back that were just wildly expensive and kind of destroyed the dream that he had of the kind of a a director-led production company giving him the power to kind of really controlled his own productions uh, which turned out to not be able to survive massive uh, failures.
0: Mm. I mean, I, I'm always one of the people who is like oh, keep the suits out of filmmaking you know, it's it's you know they don't know what they're doing, they're not artists or whatever, but they do think, oh, don't put artists in charge of a business. <laughs> That's a fucking terrible idea. Yeah, it's
1: like, I, I am firmly of the belief that restrictions are really useful in making good art. Like, you don't want the producers to be on the set. You don't want him to kind of be leaning over the director's shoulder and telling them what they should be doing, but you also want someone to at least be looking at the books and saying, "Yeah, we need to, uh, we need to kind of control this a bit more." I think the Robert Evans model is probably the, the 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 not just because he's a hugely entertaining person who can spin a good yarn, but he's probably the perfect example of a producer in that he would be keeping an eye on the budgets and he would kind of. Take people to tasks if he felt that stuff wasn't working, but if he saw something in the work that he believed in, he would be entirely behind the artists. You know that he was, uh, he was bankrolling.
0: Mm. Kind of someone like Megan Ellison is doing that right now.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah, she is someone who has really kind of taken that to heart and working in a in outside of the studio system to a great extent because she's obviously doing it with her own money and and kind of taking these directors who maybe would struggle to make films in the studio system, people like Paul Thomas Anderson, to a lesser extent, Bennett Miller, uh, Catherine Bigelow, people who have worked in the studio system but maybe have kind of bumped heads with with uh, producers before and allowing them to do more or less what they want, A24 kind of doing a similar thing as well.
0: It uh, also got me thinking, uh, Ed, about films that were perhaps deliberately contrived to be hard shoots, Mm-hmm. Um, and the one that springs to mind there first is The Shining where, yep. um, Mr. Kubrick would, he really did put his cast through the ringer.
1: Yeah. Particularly Shelley Duvall, who, uh, was kind of forced to scream and cry for like 109 takes or something and was dehydrated from the sheer amount of uh, crying she had to do. And, you know, uh, Uh, scatman Crothers, who I believe at one point was just kind of broken down into tears because he just didn't know what Kubrick wanted, and the fact that Kubrick did kind of operate in his own... He he had a level of control over his films that pretty much no one had before or since, in the sense that he could shoot for years at a time, as as we saw with Eyes Wide Shut, another film that had a very difficult shoot. Uh, He just had sort of a level of control that no one else had, so he could do as many takes as he wanted to get what he wanted and what he wanted often involved exhausting his actors and taking them to the brink of madness.
0: Mm. My wife's uh, just been reading Charlie Chaplin's uh, biography uh, by Peter Aykroyd um, and she was telling me that uh, one of Chaplin's films, he uh, deliberately shot one scene for a month uh, so he could get what he wanted and apparently like his crew, who kind of worked with him a lot, would know exactly when he had got his co-stars into the state that he'd wanted them and they would be ready to go straight away and ready to get exactly what he wanted to the point where like they weren't probably trying that hard uh, when he didn't have what he wanted. But once he'd got the reaction he wanted out of his co-star, the crew were ready to roll.
1: Yeah, I think uh, to go back to Kubrick, he basically did the same thing famously with George C. Scott on Doctor Strangelove where George C. Scott in the film gives like an amazing comic performance where he's just every single take is like huge and amazing. And the way that Kubrick got him to do that was that uh, because George C. C. Scott didn't want to do that was he would film all of the takes the way George C. Scott would do it. And then he would say, hey, why don't we just do like a really big one just for fun? And then he used all of those in the final film Mm. (laughs) because that was what he wanted for the tone of it. And also Mm. in terms of exhausting people, a good example of that would be uh, would be Werner Herzog, who, when working with Klaus Kinski on Aguirre, The Wrath of God, always wanted him to be more subdued than Klaus Kinski was because Klaus Kinski was a kind of amazing physical actor who was also a massive ham and kind of given to doing performances that were kind of Nicholas Cage-like in their eccentricity. He would just kind of shoot take after take after take and he would also rile him up so that he would get really, really angry to the point where he would just eventually be exhausted and then he would get him to do a take where he would be this really kind of quite an intense thing because he just didn't have the energy anymore to do what he wanted to do. Mm. So that, I that mean, worked I mean, out.
0: All those, all those Herzog-Kinsky films kind of exist in a state of perpetual drama, don't they? Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> including famously them both trying to kill each other on Aguirre the Rife of God, or threatening to at least, where I believe Kinsky first said that he wanted to kill Herzog and then Herzog, at one point when he was ranting and raving, saying if you don't stop, I'm going to go to my hut, I'm going to get my gun, I'm going to come back and I'm going to shoot you in front of all of these people. <laughs> Which uh, is um, not the sort of thing that you see on most film shoots.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, that's. it's just reminded me, it's not really... Well, it was kind of a hard shoot, but in no means disastrous. But the, uh, the McCabe and Miss Miller shoot, mm. I read a great thing that like Robert Altman would wasn't particularly a perfectionist, but was directing Warren Beatty, who was. Mm. And Rob Altman would be like, after about 15 takes of one thing, which was, you know, maybe 13 more than he wanted to do in the first place, uh, would just say, yeah, that's fine. Uh, let's move on. And Warren Beatty was like, no, we're going to get this right. And then Rob Altman would be like, all right, well, you can. I'm just going to go to bed. And then <laughs> <laughs> he would just let Warren Beatty with the film crew film as long as they wanted and then he would just not use any of it it <laughs> would just completely just go with what he wanted in the first place
1: yeah something else that I, I was just thinking of uh in terms of like film shoots that just went horribly wrong but ended up working out really well would be indiana jones uh the first indiana jones films raiders of the lost ark where famously the cast and crew all got horrible diarrhea from mm. drinking the terrible terrible water in marrakesh or wherever they were filming which uh, obviously indirectly led to one of the greatest moments in the film, which is when they had to jettison an incredibly high, highly choreographed sword fight because Harrison Ford just was not well to do it and he had him just shoot the guy who was spinning the sword around. And mm. it's interesting to look at Spielberg's career because it's littered, certainly the early years, they're littered with films that overran, that uh, went wildly over Jaws, famously. The shark didn't work, which necessitated them, necessitated them to go over you know to for the shoot to drag on and for them to him to basically at one point have a meeting with the suits where they were determining whether or not to keep him on the film and he pressed them just enough to let them to to convince them that they should keep him on and that turned out to be a pretty solid choice for all involved but then you Hmm. also get et we've mentioned before 1941 less worked out less well but also kind of a disaster Um, And I think that does reinforce the idea that that history really is the judge of whether a a production is a disaster, because if everyone ends up making money from it or they make a film that kind of lasts for the ages, then that's all anyone ever really kind of talks about. Mm, That's
0: absolutely true. And all these things only serve to highlight how really difficult it is to make a fucking film to basically carry out something that is uh, kind of a military scale logistical feat uh, at the same time trying to kind of in tiny moments capture like artistic moments that is the vision of one person uh, who is somehow in charge of, you know, in some cases, thousands of people.
1: Yeah, I think also it's interesting when you look at people who, um are renowned for being huge successes like spielberg but who when you kind of dig into the details just like all of their films are just uh one kind of like bad day away from a complete disaster a good example of that also would be pixar who seemingly mm. have never had a smooth running production in their entire 20 something year history
0: mm. yeah they they were kind of saying that they the the remaking, reshooting process and reshaping process is is integral to their output. You know, they, they make a film, they put it together, then they change things. I mean, obviously, they don't go all the way to kind of animating it into its completion, but, like, there's been so many occasions in Pixar history where they've had to bring co-directors in and uh, kind of reshape the story about what it's about, where it's going, and, you know, they've done all right. I mean, we've talked about Pixar at length and you know there's no greater proponent at the moment of films that make a lot of money but are also critically lauded
1: yeah i mean if you look go back to the very beginning with toy story which they had to completely rewrite from the ground up because the initial relationship between Buzz and buddy was too antagonistic and woody was just completely unlikable and a terrible character even compared to the not 100 percent great guy that he is in the film uh, toy story 2 at one point i think They accidentally deleted all of, and they had to they had to (laughs) scramble to find a copy of it, which someone had accidentally backed up on their private server back home. So someone had to drive across, drive home, grab their computer, and just like drive it all the way back to Pixar Studios. They could try and reconstruct it. Brad Bird had to be brought in a fairly late stage on Ratatouille because the original director Jan Pinkava had done something that wasn't working, and he he had to be removed. yeah like you say on things like brave they brought in co-directors and in in every case like the films end up being oscar nominated or they make a lot of money and people don't really talk about the the failures i think the only one that people will end up talking about and saying yeah this process didn't end up working is probably going to be the good dinosaur because it was the only one that lost money for them
0: mm. and it's not dreadful no i mean it's not really not very really good but it's not cars too bad do you know what i mean which made a fuck yeah. ton of money yeah.
1: and was probably a very smooth process.
0: Yeah, well, uh, watching it, I think it probably knocked out in half a day. Um, yeah, it's not great. So yeah, I think that's pretty much covered uh, movie disasters. Let's do some recommendations. What you got this week, Ed?
1: I'm going to recommend a comedy following on from Keanu, which I last recommended. I'm going to recommend a comedy from a acclaimed sketch group who, are making, who have worked in movies a bit, but this is kind of their first production that's all them. It's the Lonely Islands film Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping, which is a mockumentary about a pop star played by Andy Samberg, who uh, is kind of a, an amalgam of Justin Bieber and Justin Timberlake in that he is someone who is kind of a ridiculous narcissist, but he is also someone who uh, is kind of a solo sensation who grew out of a equally successful uh, group. And it follows him as he plans to release his second album, which is on the face of it, completely terrible and say sells very badly, the tour that accompanies it and, you know, his uh, gradual realisation that he has been a terrible person to everyone in his life, including his former bandmates, one of whom serves as his DJ, but all he does is just play backing music from an iPod, and the other one of which has become a bearded farmer in Colorado and who spends most of the film just being in this incredibly depressing milieu, milieu where he is carving terrible uh, <laughs> facsimiles of music awards he thinks he should have won. Uh <laughs> it it's really really funny. It, it reminded me most of Walk Hard: The Dewey Cox Story, which is also a Judd Apatow production from about 10 years ago mm-hmm. where uh, the, on the one level it's just an amazing facsimile of the kind of movie that it's 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 taking off in this case the Justin Bieber uh, concert movie. Uh, never say never and also a just a great joke delivery system where there's just a great gag every couple of minutes or sometimes five or six in a single minute Uh, there's different kinds of humor there's absurd stuff there's more keenly observed stuff there's stuff that comes from character there's some that's just Bill Hader talking about how he enjoys he has a penchant for flatlining which is (laughs) Uh, going to the point of death and <laughs> being awakened by, uh, by a defibrillator a la the Joel Schumacher classic. Uh, and it's just uh, a wonderful, really, really enjoyable film. It's, it's, it's really good. There's a little bit of sentiment in there, but it's mainly just an opportunity for a lot of very funny performers to kind of enjoy themselves for, for 80-something minutes. And it's it's really fantastic.
0: Uh, yes, to quote Baz Bambergoy, I can't wait to see it. Do you do you want that as a reference to that joke?
1: <laughs> no,
0: I think it was Anna Karenina the film, you know the one with Keira Knightley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know when they have poster quotes. Yeah, that was his. I can't <laughs> wait to see it, Baz Guy. <laughs> <laughs> I just I've always like that. That you know they got a poster quote to to hyper film uh, from someone who hadn't seen it but really <laughs> wanted to. I'm going to recommend uh, this week a stand up special, a stand up special by a, a comedian, a very funny man. Called Bo Burnham, who some people might know as a kind of a funny song man on the YouTube. Uh, that's where he found his fame. Uh, disgustingly young, at the age of like 16, 17, 18, I think he was when he first started uh, putting stuff out there. But yeah, he uh, did a, a stand-up special called What, I think, two years ago, and that is incredibly funny. And his new one is called Make Happy, and it arrived on Netflix two days ago, and it is a quite kind of like brilliant blend of kind of absurd, very kind of postmodern bits of stand up comedy. He doesn't just stand there and tell jokes. He doesn't do a routine as such. There's uh, lots of little bits, fragments of ideas. There's a kind of like a, a whole meta thing going on. But he also does really funny songs. Um, he does uh, poetry, which is uh, very funny. Uh, his favorite uh, poem of mine is Roses Are Grey. Uh, violets are grey let's go chase cars and that's a poem by a dog <laughs> which is very funny uh, yeah so yeah he's got a new stand up show out and it's uh, yeah on Netflix it's Netflix exclusive we were talking before the uh, recording tonight The Netflix have kind of become those guys that are putting out kind of stand up specials uh, by kind of famous people and big people but also by people that you wouldn't expect them to kind of back but they do which is nice to see
1: Yeah, it is uh, something that they haven't really talked about as much as like their terrible Adam Sandler movies or their Mm. Marvel original series. But I think one of the strongest parts of Netflix over the few years is they, like you say, they are giving a venue for kind of interesting talent who maybe aren't big enough to be on Comedy Central or HBO or certainly aren't big enough to be given a full hour. And it's great to see them getting support and an opportunity to get their work out there. Hmm.
0: Mm, absolutely so yeah see both those things um when you can uh, that's your lot on the subject of movie disasters thanks as always for listening if you've enjoyed the show uh, please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher or player fm and if you really enjoyed the show leave us a little review why don't you uh, you can find us on twitter at srs underscore podcast and on facebook as well uh, and also at our website which is srspodcast.com Uh, we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me